This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. Alan's uh, been a sort of uh, colleague um, and fellow traveler in this game of trying to make sense of this world, certainly as long, you know, almost as long as I have, probably not quite as long as I have, but almost uh, certainly as long as I've been trying to do this and uh, trying to understand these things in America. And um, unlike me, he has an enormous capacity for, um, for trying to get to the bottom of things through data. Um, and one of the, um, so what I used the, the few minutes before you came to say, um, you know, what are the gaps? The first question was, well, uh, can we talk a little bit more about what the sort of level of um, data and quality of data that both informs policy and informs evaluation? In other words, informs both ends of the process. And I had a, you know, a fairly uh, jaded view, I suppose, of the of the general level of uh, uh, of as it were data sensibility, if you like, in the field of, of policy policy formation in this area. So, very happy to start there, which is in a sense one of your. Um, I know that keeps coming up. The um, they keep reminding reminding you how to get online. I found that when I did the same thing. Um, uh, um, as good a starting point as any, which is you are, I would suggest, one of the leaders in having a highly empirical approach to your work. You have a theoretical approach to, too, but having a, hi a highly um, uh, refined understanding of both what the, uh, both how important data is and how tough it is to get it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, are you out there alone, or is there a general um, uh, understanding of how important? data analysis is the policy? <coughs> That's a really interesting question. Sometimes I feel like I'm out on a limb by myself, um, but there are people who are interested in developing better measurement systems. But I think you can't, you can't really talk about, about data without first talking about um, frameworks or rubrics. Because you know, what are you assessing? What are you, you know, to, to what ends are you trying to create some sort of social change? You know, uh, so data is just in service of some hypothesis or framework and uh, what we lack, in my opinion, is any sort of generally accepted rubric, outcome rubric, for arts and culture. So how have we got so far? <laughs> I'm gonna, you can spiel to your heart's content, sure. but these are, you know, we now have a very sophisticated um, group of people out here. They've been doing yeah. this two weeks. They started off, I say, yeah. what the hell are the ends of cultural policy? Uh -huh. What are the means of cultural policy? How is it, and one of the things that I said you know, two weeks ago when we started, or two weeks ago on Monday when we started, was that I thought that uh, it was astonishing at how far the discussion around cultural policy had got without, as it were, a 
particularly sophisticated right. set of causal reasoning right. about how it is that money thrown at culture works. In other words, yeah. exactly what those models are. Well, Why is it that we're so far behind? I don't know, uh, agricultural yeah. policy or health policy or... Well, a couple things. First of all, I think people confuse strategy with policy. So people jump to strategy without actually developing policy, which means you have to talk about philosophical difference. You know, you have to actually take a philosophical position to have a policy. Now that can be based on data, but um, so, so there's that. And on some level, of course, investments in arts and culture pay dividends without any, you know, measurement systems needed or anything, you know, I think in a lived sense, you see outcomes from culture all the time. You, you know, you stand in the lobby and you see people talking and you see them bond, you know, there's social bonding, there's aesthetic growth, there's intellectual stimulation, emotional resonance. All of the intrinsic impacts happen on some level, sometimes subconsciously. And uh, we're trying to develop measurement systems for that, but it's very uh, difficult. Tell us a bit about that. Um, well, uh, what, you know, to what ends do you offer programs? <laughs> to employ musicians? Maybe, partly. Maybe a healthy community has a, a practicing artist. Um, but I think the long-term outcomes of, of all sorts of cultural programs are to trans is to provide people with transformative experiences on some level, right? To improve their life. Um, and so um, I know some of your reading materials you read, Gifts of the Muse. Um, uh, and actually, it was that piece of work. I was doing some work with Wallace Foundation and. Um, I'll tell you the little story of how the intrinsic impact study happened, which was uh, we were sitting at a conference room down at the Wallace Foundation office, and Kevin McCarthy, the author of Gifts of the Muse, had just given his very forceful presentation. Oh, we're being recorded. I have to be careful. No, it's um, uh, uh, an eloquent converse, uh, presentation. Dogmatic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this um, wonderful, wonderful scholarly book called Gifts of the Muse, which is, you know, sure to put you sound asleep. <laughs> it's so beautifully erudite and dense. It, it's hard to absorb. And um, the dissemination of it was not going well for Wallace. Um, they were having trouble getting kind of uptake. <laughs> and there was a particular presentation of it at the NEA, which, which what, what I heard didn't go very well. And my phone rang, and they said, can you help us um, figure out how to disseminate this? And that's, a, that's another story. You know, I said, basically, the best you can do is invite people to criticize it. And that is uptake. That's what you want. They were trying to sell the headlines. Yeah. I'm like, no. You know, invite people to criticize it, and then it might actually teach. You know, there might be some learning. But anyway, Kevin McCarthy gave a presentation, and afterwards, and Kate Levin was there. Um, he finished, and you know it was that awkward moment in any meeting where the presentation is over and Q and A starts, and no one has a question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so there was, you know, there were like 14 people sitting around a table like this. And, um, and so eventually I broke the silence and I said, you know, isn't it, isn't it ironic that after like 10 years of, of talking about measurable outcomes, you're finally telling us that the real benefit of the arts is intrinsic and can't be measured? And And Ed Pauley, the evaluation director at the Wallace, turned to me and he said, Alan, if you can describe something, you can measure it. And I didn't understand him at first. It took me a long time to understand that what he was saying is that if you can articulate some, some phenomenon or some desired outcome, you can write questions that would elicit data that would help you assess that, no matter how abstract or subjective. So it was that comment in that meeting which emboldened me to suggest the study of intrinsic impacts of a live performance, which was a study we did and it's available on the Wolf Brown website. Um, um, which, it, uh, um, Essentially, we sat down and wrote the tough questions. You know, how captivated were you by this performance? What was your emotional response? Uh, you know, did you talk about it with the people you came with? Was that exchange casual or intense? Um, did it challenge, did it um, cause you to question your views on it? You know, we tried to make it as generic as possible and um, develop a rubric for assessing the intrinsic impact of live performances. Uh, but it's, it's very controversial um, and uh, because people are very threatened by putting numbers on what is inherently a subjective experience. Um, so it's very much an open issue. But I'll tell you one thing, arts, arts people are so glad um, to have something else to talk about besides attendance and ticket sales. You know, because right now that's how we report <coughs> our impact. And attendance and ticket sales are, I, I suppose, a proxy for impact. But they don't communicate in any way how people are transformed, which is the real outcome. So anyway. So um so what you, what you are attempting to do in this piece of your work is to create a common framework through which um, the cultural community can talk to themselves and other people in a, in, a, um, in a coherent, rational fashion about the true impact of their work and therefore create some sort of framework ultimately for evaluation. Correct? Um, it's not quite such a closed loop as you describe. Um, the problem comes, <coughs> on some level, yes, that is, that is exactly what we're trying to do, is get people to buy into a, a vocabulary and a set of indicators that would um, express the outcomes of their programs. So. Um, but the problem comes, you know, watch the artistic directors squirm when you report their emotional resonance scores. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I sat on a panel at Arts Presenters with Daniel Bernard <coughs> Romain, who's this wonderful classical artist who plays hip hop music. And, and, and I showed him his impact scores from a performance he had done at the university. And, and he was very uncomfortable with it. He said, God, I wish my, um, what did he say? I wish my social bonding score was higher. But was he being facetious? You no. Being facetious. He wasn't no. being facetious. No, he wasn't. And he said, he said, and you can tell, I mean, the power of an idea is sometimes evident in the amount of resistance it gets when first introduced. And on that measure, this is a really powerful idea. Because he was, it made him really nervous to see, you know, 3.8 on a scale of 1 to 7. And he's like, you know, first of all, a, I didn't buy into that indicator. What if that's not what I intended as an outcome of my work? So you see, he was saying, don't evaluate me on something I'm not bought into. So that's legitimate. You know, and then are you telling me if I get a 3.8 this year that next year you're going to want me to get a 3.9 on spiritual value? So I think it gets tricky when you're evaluating artistic outcomes because you have to account for the intentionality of the artist. Right. So what I hope with the intrinsic impact work is actually just to introduce vocabulary that would allow people to talk about how their artistic work is received, but not necessarily imply that the reception of the work should drive the programming choices, because there's a higher Right. ideal at work of artistic vision, right? And sometimes, for example, when you do challenging work, you might get a really low score on um, emotional resonance, but, but because the work was challenged, and that doesn't mean that you should stop doing that work. It just means that that work didn't create that outcome. You know, so... So how far have you got with the evangelical act uh -huh. of getting this framework yeah. inserted into policy discussions? Uh, not very far. Although, as I said, people are excited about talking about something besides attendance and ticket sales. Right. You can't beat something with nothing. Right. And so some funders, actually, the Scottish Arts Council is now pilot testing a project with this intrinsic impact. And the Australia Council for the Arts just commissioned me to develop a, a survey, an audience survey template that they will provide to all of their grantees um, that they will be able to customize and start collecting data. And I've tried to explain to them that <coughs> it's not enough just to hand someone a tool. You know, you actually have to sit down with them and and coach them through it, and then in the back end, you know, data is meaningless. It's the conversation around the data that matters. What is the role of research in an artistically driven organization? There's a lot of confusion around that. That's why people say they don't trust audience surveys. Often, I think, because they've had legitimately bad experiences with bad, <laughs> poorly designed research, uh, and, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect arts managers to be skilled in evaluation techniques and, or, or survey design or even interpretation of data. 
So it's a skill set that really lies largely outside the capacity of our field. And, and so that's one issue. But qualitative data can be so powerful. Um, and we're working on open-ended questions that elicit the kind of data that artistic directors actually want to hear. So for example, in the impact survey, one of the questions is, um, did you leave the performance with unanswered questions you'd like to ask the artist? And you know, on average, across 19 performances, it was almost 50% said yes. And it ranged from a high of 75% for a non-traditional ballet performance to a low of 8% for Mamma Mia. Right. <laughs> Actually, I want to do a focus group with those 8%. <laughs> Just exactly what do you want to know? So, but after that question, we ask an unanswered question, we say, what were your questions? <laughs> um, or even just something so general as, what was, it, what was on your mind as you left the performance? Um, those, and then the open-ended, you know, particularly online surveys, people write and they write and they write, and you get really lengthy sometimes responses to open-ended questions. And what we'd like to do with this impact assessment thing is, is just provide like a continuous feedback of open-ended um, responses to artistic staff. So here's what the audience, here's the questions the audience was asking of itself as it left the performance last night. And I would love to get to the point where we could provide that, and that's qualitative. And you know what, I think a lot of artistic people especially believe qualitative data much more than quantitative data. We did a literature review back in 2007 before 2006, sort of going into this and, and looked at um, how people's sort of values were measured. Um, and a lot of it came from that body of literature around quality of life. Um, but actually most of our questioning came from Gifts of the Muse, right, because they identified the six essentially the six constructs of intrinsic impact. Captivation, intellectual stimulation, spiritual value, aesthetic growth, social bonding. There was one other. I can't remember. Anyway, so, um, <coughs> but then we also talked about readiness to receive, you know, like how ready are people to receive the art? Because if you think about it, you look over an audience, people are in very different places. Some people are extremely knowledgeable about the art form. They've read a lot. They know what they're going to get. Other people walked in off the street and have no idea. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to explore kind of the relationship between sort of preparedness and impact. You know, and the upshot was that um, anticipation levels, when they are heightened, uh, lead to higher levels of captivation which is a gateway uh, impact that then leads to higher levels of other impacts. You know, so some people sleep through performances, they're not captivated, right? And they have, therefore, the other impacts cannot occur. Um, but that, that's why marketing is strategic to mission fulfillment because it creates anticipation. 
and a heightened emotional state, which then leads to more impactful experiences. I think from a funder's perspective, it's um, facetious to think that uh, you could impose an intrinsic impact evaluation on a grantee and review their captivation scores and decide their grant on whether they got a 4.5 or a 4.6, you know. I think the point of that is one of accountability, is that a, a high-performing organization is constantly assessing its work by whatever means. All right, so from a policy perspective, what you want to know is that, okay, I'm investing grant funds in that organization. I just want to ensure that they are assessing their work based on the best possible rubrics. And, you know, at a practical level, a self-aware organization is doing that. Right. What, they, what they're ne not necessarily doing it is in as refined a sense uh, or as a refined a fashion as the methodology allows. At the end of a concert, you're always trying to assess out what the vibe is. You know, are people going out right. on a euphoric high? Are they going out, you know, sort of talking to one another about the bar? Or are they going out uh, right. uh, talking about what they've just heard? Is there a flatness in the room? You know, um, uh, how restless was the audience? Those are all proxies, in a sense, for the questions that you're asking them pretty well directly. But it's interesting, you mentioned two potential, two clients who had picked it up, Scottish Arts Council and the Australia Council. They are both strategic funding agencies, ostensibly. Right. Right. So wh what are they doing? I mean, why, why, is, it the, why is it the policy makers yeah. who, are, who are the clients? Well, the Australia Council, in my opinion, is the most evolved uh, philosophically. Um, they uh, fund excellence, but they realize that they have no clue what that means. <laughs> and they set out to actually look at what is artistic vitality. And, and if you look on their website, there's a wonderful sort of suite of papers on artistic vitality. Um, and they developed a framework for an artistically vital arts organization that includes, they are listening to their audiences, they do peer reviews, uh, and you know, a couple, and so. No, I was just saying, and you have to understand how, in a sense, not heretical that is, but yeah. how far from the norm it is. Correct. In other words, most strategic arts funding agencies are neurotically, um, defensive about making judgments about the core issue or a core issue which is the quality of work they would much rather talk about anything what your social yes. access policies are what your balance sheet is like um, what your um, right. standards of governance are uh, any anything other than go to the heart of the matter and say is this work any good there is a, there has been right there has been a great intellectual crisis of confidence about making value judgments as a funder. Uh -huh. And where they do make funding, uh -huh. they prefer to delegate them to some sort of peer review body right. that, as it were, puts it in a box slightly outside the backyard. And then you can go out and have a look at it and then walk back in and say, no, that wasn't us, that was them. So a mechanism that, as it were, brings quality of work back to the center of debate 
and makes that a sort of overt part of the discussion right. is pretty unusual. And, and also incorporates community relevance as, as a part of artistic vitality. There's, such, there's a natural tension between community relevance and service to the art form, right? It's, it's an inherent tension within every nonprofit arts organization, at least it should be. And so to actually develop a framework that says a healthy and artistically vital organization is doing this, 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 and this, you know, is a big advance forward. So it might be helpful for us. I don't know how many people have read. Would it, it might, if you can bear it, for you to just give a five-minute overview of the framework itself of artistic vitality. Yeah. Can you, are you actually? Actually, we're not paying enough. No, no, no. I would, I would need, <laughs> I would need to access their website actually, or maybe to do that. But I'd like to suggest actually that we jump back to a more global viewpoint sure. because we're actually talking about sort of in institutional effectiveness and artistic. And I'd like to get back to the sort of the policy level and talk about rubrics. You know, because your project's writer to write a policy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So. How are you going to know if your policy is effective? What is the desired outcome of your policy? You know, to support the existing infrastructure in your community? Uh, I'm sure you've had other people rant about this. Uh, you know, but. The floor is yours. We just, uh, you know, there was a wonderful symposium in Los Angeles uh, last month at the LA Music Center, you know, which, which was about essentially repurposing large performing art centers to serve a larger social good. Oh, really? Yeah. No one crossed me by that. Yeah, it was Josephine Ramirez. It was Josephine's, or, or, yeah. Organized it. And uh, you know, well, it was ironic that we were talking actually about, you know, $300 million performing arts centers, some of which are not even open yet. They're still under construction. We're already talking about repurposing them. <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're realizing that what gets built, in other words, the policy decisions being made about investments in culture uh, in the absence of cultural policy are being made by wealthy donors. And their um, um, co colluders. Co-conspirators. Yes, co-conspirators. And that this is um, really wreaking havoc on cultural development in the United States because no one is intervening early enough in the process to say, wait, oh, wait, maybe what Las Vegas needs is not a $400 million performing arts center, but a, a series of creativity centers all around the cities where people can go and sing and dance and tell their stories and share what they've written, you know, but that's not happening, and that's a failing, in my view, of cultural policy, is, the, is that there is no, in the absence of it, policy is being set by either wealthy donors or the institutions themselves who divert all the resources to uh, support their own turf without the sort of global viewpoint. Um, so I, I know you have some very strong feelings about the role of large institutions in the cultural landscape. No, I mean, um, you, but, but you've described them fairly accurately, so. 
Yeah, which is. But I mean, the only thing I would say is that it's clearly not just an American phenomenon. In other words, it's not right. just. Right. It's not. It, one can't. I mean, I've tried to do this. You try to look at America and say, yeah, the reason is this has happened in the States. The reason that we're overbuilt right. with these big sclerotic organizations, etc., is because of the absence of a strong federal cultural policy or even a strong state cultural policy. Right. Except right. that we're doing the same thing all over Europe. We're doing the same thing all, uh -huh. all, over, all over Southeast Asia. Right. We're doing the same thing all over Australia. So there is something going on which isn't simply an attribute of the lack of a centralized cultural policy. You see what I mean? In other words, otherwise we could, um, uh, otherwise you would expect this phenomenon to be more advanced in America than it is elsewhere, because America is the least well-articulated federal cultural policy, uh -huh. state-level cultural policy right. in the world. Right. So I completely agree that there's something going on, but I'm not sure you can lay it all at the, uh, at the, at the feet of the, of, as it were, the, um, the co-conspirator, the, 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 the philanthropists and the arts organizations co-conspiring to uh, ignore wider social trends. It is a social trend in itself. Yeah, and, and I suppose if people felt more um, invested in arts and culture, they would uh, stand up and oppose something that they felt was inappropriate for their community. But who's going to stand up and say, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, we really don't want your theater? You know, yeah. th that's just not going to happen. The locus of power is around the large institutions, like it or not. And the small people and the individual artists, the people in their homes doing crafts and dancing and making music are generally not a politicized body. Right. Right? Although they are the primary constituency, one would think, for arts and culture. Um, so anyway, I've been thinking about you know, what is a rubric? What is an outcome rubric for cultural policy? When, when someone proposes to build an office tower, they have to do an environmental audit, right? You know, they have to get a permit. So what if cultural facilities required a cultural audit? And what if you couldn't open a cultural facility unless you had endowed its operating expenses for 10 years? As a matter of policy. Now that would be interesting. It would grind the building boom to a halt. Yeah, right, right. But it happens. You know, Bass Hall in Fort Worth, the Bass family, this wealthy oil family, they not only donated $100 million for the theater, but they donated $10 million to replace the building in 100 years. Wow. Really? I, I thought that's, that's responsible development. But, but that's for the operation. And, the and they also... I think endowed the operation. And the antithesis right. of that yeah. is Ovation Hall in Madison, uh -huh. right. where um, the donor, um, a, a massive single donor provided the 100 million or however much it was to build the hall, insisted that it was built to a very high specification. I think it's 2,600 seats, you know, lots of, you know, lavishly finished, and that was it. And neither he nor the city have provided any funding whatsoever right. for its operating role, right, right. as a result of which it is, you know, effectively like an empty gun, you know, yeah. with no ammunition because right. the economics of, uh, right. in, in, particularly in that a community that size. So, 
That's a great case study in, in civic and philanthropic yeah. irresponsibility. You said it. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I may I just share some ideas with you because um, I, I just this morning had a conversation. Um, I've been doing some work in Philadelphia um, around trying to develop a better measurement system for cultural engagement. And I wanted to kind of share, share that because it's been um, a real challenge um, to figure out who is the stakeholder group for that data once you have it. You know, be careful what you wish for. Um, and also sort of the larger thing. So the first sort of thing I guess you want to look at is, you know, what are you, what are you talking about here? Yeah, there's a blue one then. Is there something that's got more? Better. This one's got a bit more. It's been a long two weeks, and I meant to get another one. You know, what are you measuring? Yeah, are you measuring arts? Are you measuring culture? Are you measuring creativity? You know, and you got to really have that discussion before you can talk about policy. You know, what matters? What is? How big is the tent? Right? Because if you're talking about culture, you're talking about non-arts culture. Right? So what would be some examples of that? Right? What is culture that's not art? Language. Food, language. History. Thank you. Heritage. Mm -hmm. History. Sorry? Mamma Mia. Yeah. <laughs> Ostensibly, that's art. Religion. I hate to break the news to you. Uh, <laughs> no, let's not go there, actually. That's another course, Adrian. You can teach that one. What is art? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, creativity is actually a bigger idea. And are you really setting pol a creative policy, creative vitality policy? So, you know, this is certainly where the energy is in the business sector. You know, because they all want a creative workforce. Daniel Pink has been talking about creative workforce. Richard Florida started, you know, all of that. So, you know, I think this is the first discussion. Is where is the traction? You know, do you really mean art? You know, we have the National Endowment for the Arts, not culture. You know, we have Creative New Zealand. We have Creative Scotland, you know, it's, it's very much evolving towards this. Um, and, but, but this, you know, creativity is a big idea with many aspects. Um, but if you want to get the business sector interested in what you're doing, you kind of got to abstract it up to creativity. And I mean, th there is so much, such a lack of dialogue between the arts community and the business community. You know, I remember the create, create, I think in your reading list you had Creative Community Index from uh, John Kreidler in Silicon Valley. Well, there was a conference for arts and business communities and all the arts people sat on one side of the room and all the business people <laughs> sat on the other side of the room. And, and, and the arts people were just basically, you know, just send more money, you know, buy more tickets. There was no real, anyway. So that's one conversation I think we want to have. And so... What the Philadelphia people wanted to measure was cultural engagement. You know, the NEA has been measuring arts participation. 
So we're kind of reframing it a little bit and saying, okay, let's talk about cultural participation. There's a lot of interest now in this sort of broader definition of culture. You know, what counts? Uh, does making crafts at home count as cultural engagement? Does gardening count as cultural engagement? Does um, dressing creatively or accessorizing oneself count as cultural engagement? You know, where are the boundaries? What do you care about? What gets surveyed? You know, th th there's a direct relation. So you got to talk about what, what does culture mean to you? What is inside and outside that boundary? And ultimately, it's an arbitrary decision, but you got to make it. I assume that for you, in this case, if for you as a group of funders, uh, including public and not-for-profit funders in um, Philadelphia, correct? Well, in this case, the client is the Philadelphia Cultural Alliance, right. which is an agency, but, it, but actually not a funding agency. Okay. It's an advocacy group. Advocacy group. Right. Right. Um, uh, but they were very much fanning, fanning my flames about, yeah, gardening. Yeah, preparing traditional foods. You know, I'm like, you sure you want to ask that question? Because, you know, you know what happened? Oh, oh, um, um, they wanted to know about cultural activity that occurs in places of worship. All right, so it's in there. Singing in a church choir. Uh, uh, participating in theatrical pageants in places of worship. All right, so you can argue all you want about whether or not that's cultural engagement, but at some point you have to decide from a policy perspective if you want to support that activity. And I would ask you, is it meaningful to people? Does it transform them? <coughs> Does it have emotional resonance, intellectual stimulation, aesthetic growth, captivation? You know, it all comes back to all that stuff. Anyway, um, so take your utopian community, and you're the cultural policy maven, and you have to develop a new rubric <laughs> for Creative vitality. How do you know that your community is creatively vital? Awkward um, and where private arts education, how many um, private schools there are that offer um, arts programs? Hang on right there. Good. Let's talk about these. So, supply of programs. So, okay, you got to get it out. Come on. Well, I'm just <laughs> right. Well, you have to first figure out what you're going to count as being creative and what you're not. Like, like um, let's let's say we in yeah. or out. Like, you got to figure out who's yeah. in and who's out, right? Well, I don't want to have a debate about gardening versus you know but, tattooing, but 
<laughs> Wouldn't that inform how you have to? Yeah, it would inform all of this. Because if you include tattooing, then you need to find out the tattoo artists. Right? But let's, let's hold that aside for right now. So supply of programs. That's really interesting. Because the mere supply of programs actually does, what does that say about demand or participation? So we have uh, an orchestra in our city, and we have uh, a um, community theater, and we have a visual arts center. So we're set, right? Okay. Public looking at one of the administrative and the demand right. is to figure out right. whether or not they are an active part of the community. Okay. So you might define this a little bit uh, as sort of access or utilization of assets. Right? So I, I think it's a nice idea to do sort of an inventory of cultural assets. But how do you know if that's the right inventory for your community? What, what I'm trying to get at here is what are the components of a rubric for creative vitality? Not so much what goes in the soup, but what's the recipe? Oh, no, that, that, <laughs> bad metaphor. Um, so, Supply, I think, is a nice idea. You might actually try to measure demand, all right, which is what are people actually doing, right? And that's the void of data, is, you know, the NEA has been surveying people on a limited number of activities every five years, and very, very few communities do any sort of primary research on cultural engagement. Almost not. So there is almost a complete void of empirical data about what are people actually doing. So that's, that's the first sort of challenge. Presence of artists, great indicator. How are you going to get that data? Don't answer. That, that's, you know, I think there's some tax data. There's some... Um, there's some government data available, but you might uh, you might create a website that's a registry. If if you consider yourself to be an artist of any sort, tell us about yourself and your community, and then you have people sign up, and you let them tell you if they're an artist and what medium they work in. Right? That would be interesting. But that becomes really complicated because if you have self-defined artists, you have to set parameters as to what an artist is. That's a, that's a really long conversation because I might consider myself a self-identified artist. Right. I, don't, I don't make a living from artistry. Right. I don't really participate in the artistic right. vitality. So I just I think right. also the data is not very reflective because right. how do you actually enforce artists right. to sign up? Right. Well, I think you have to develop um, some sort of indicator. You mentioned a facility, right? What uh, facility infrastructure supports creativity in our community. All right, and I suppose where you're where you're going here is, you know, 
it's not enough to just look at what's there. You also have to get to the point where you can see what's not in your community. And that's much harder. You know, so because typically the cultural infrastructure in a community is, you know, in 1940 someone started a community theater, and in 1955 someone started an orchestra, and you know, and it sort of accretes, and it's not much of it actually uh, decretes, <laughs> you know, it just kind of builds up, and so your infrastructure at any given time is this crazy quilt of organizations that are mostly artist-driven, and no one very, very seldom you know, stops and says, wait a minute, we don't have any infrastructure for crafts in our community. So actually, we're going to wait to build that second theater, and instead we're going to build a crafts center. You know, that, <laughs> that almost never happens because there's no policy. You know, so as a policymaker, you got to know not only what's there, but what's not there. There's no sort of accepted ideal that a healthy, creative community has a, you know, a, a means of theatrical and narrative expression, means of kinetic dance expression, means of musical expression, you know, that you can kind of say that, you know, the perfect community would have these amenities, these things. But I mean, you need some ideal. You need to work against some ideal in order to see what's not there. So presence of artists, but I would actually say the support of artists and arts organizations. Might go into your rubric. Uh, we've, we've got facilities. Creative identity. Yeah. I think uh, some of the festivals you see being produced around the world are meant to give cities a distinct creative identity. I love some of the new lighting, lighting events in Asia and Europe, you know, where for a weekend they have artists come and light the exterior of buildings and create like yeah. this mind-blowing light show, which captures the public's imagination. Um, what else would go in your rubric? Yes? What about some sort of snapshot of kind of the public perception or just how happy they are with the current arts field? Like, maybe it's the case that they're very happy with their cultural status, or maybe there are How do you figure out what areas that they're right. not happy with? Um, good. I think that's a... Um, that's a bit of a slippery slope. Um, you're, it's like asking people, are you happy with what you're not getting? Right, right. They don't know what they're not getting. Right. So you can't really ask the public. You can ask them if they're happy with the, you know, a particular, <coughs> particular program. But OK. One of, the, one of the things we've been trying to work out is wants-based and needs-based. Right cultural provision. Uh -huh. And what I think your question is getting at is uh -huh. where they are on wants-based. You're taking a sort right. of higher, superordinate, godlike view, which we do in arts policy, and say, I don't care what your wants are. These are your real needs. Um, uh, because well, I have a concept of you which is better than right. your current you. Right. As a result of 
me being able to turn your, <coughs> in, turn your uh, needs into one. If you believe that every human being has a creative voice of intrinsic worth, and every community has an obligation to awaken that creative voice, then you have moral justification for policies that create opportunities for a diversity of creative expression. I think that's very profound. It's worth saying that again slowly. <laughs> I mean, I just mean it's because that is the heart of what yeah. a lot of a lot of the debate around cultural provision is really a debate about. It's a moral debate. Yeah. Uh, and it's where you stand right. in in the beliefs that underpin them. Yeah. If you believe that. Every human being has a creative voice of intrinsic worth. And every community has an obligation to awaken that voice. Then you have a moral justification for creating policies that support a diversity of creative expression. I think it goes back even farther to like uh, Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. You know, some people are born with a natural affinity for narrative expression, or they acquire it very early. Some people are born with a natural affinity for kinetic expression, or they learn kinetically, or musical expression. Um, and if you know, if you buy that, then you realize that people have a need. I guess you, know, you can call that godlike or whatever. You know, have a need to express themselves in different ways, <coughs> and that you really can't value one way more than another. It, it's very difficult. Um, but we tend to value musical expression a lot but we tend not to value kinetic expression as much, maybe. You know, there is a level of um, discretion that's necessary at the policy level um, that transcends um, what the public says it wants. Um, visible signs of creativity in the community. I love this one, right? I mean, is creativity invisible? Or is it visible? And how is it manifested visually? If you drive down the street of a creative community, does it look different than an uncreative community? I'm going to be bold and yeah? say, uh, I'm just taking a step in the dark, but it's perhaps the crime is less. OK. It, it, let's, because we're, we're always narrating vitality. Right. With healthy so yeah. Intrinsic values of people obviously balanced and connecting with others and sure. what have you. They're obviously not connecting. They're connecting through, uh, you know, harmony or whatever. They're not connecting through right. blood. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm thinking. Yeah, there, there's a, a there's some body of literature in the arts education literature mm -hmm. that kids who do creative activities are more likely to stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. so I remember um, I'm from right. Sydney and we actually had a period there where um, a number of years ago our premier decided to have classical music played at all the train stations right. late at night. That was to drive people away, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to stop loitering, possibly. Uh -huh. but, um, but others said that it was just like something like calming people do waiting for that late night train and, you know, not to get in, you know, 
Interesting. Right. But you know what I'm saying. So visible, okay, so I would say actually audible signs would be added to this. So this is like creativity on a symbolic level. It's like public art, but it's much more than that. I mean, I think you could, I mean, this is maybe kind of irrelevant, but you go on Facebook and see like what videos people are posting of themselves yeah. that they made and like what right. music they're putting up there. and. The like in Syracuse, you know, they, they put on giant video screens on the outside of buildings, and every night they show videos made by community members. It's like a giant YouTube station. And that, what does that say to someone who walks by or drives by? It says, we are a creative community, right? If, you, if the fire hydrants are painted, or like in Dallas, the, the high school kids decided one day to go out and paint parking spaces. Every student got a parking space. I'm like, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars should they have paid a consultant to come up with that idea? You know, it's so, there are so many uh, simple, effective, symbolic ways of reflecting back to a community, we are creative. Because it's there, it's just not always visible. And when people see it, when they drive by it every day, on some level, I believe, they are reminded we are a creative community. So it speaks to the attitudes. Um, just a couple more things before I run out of power. Um, Do you want a pothole? Uh, no, that's okay. I think someone mentioned that, but, but sort of positive social norms around creativity, you know, it's an attitudinal indicator. You know, how, what percentage of adults in your community actually believe that creativity is important. Because if you want a more creative community, you have to not just fund programs, but you're actually trying to change cultural norms. You know, so, you know, parents, why should you do creative activities with your children? Why is it important? You know, educating people about that would be a part of a creative vitality strategy. So I think that's it. The other thing I would just put in here maybe is creative workforce, but something, something to engage the business community. And I think, did we put in here arts education, or excuse me, creative education? A healthy creative learning system. I mean, really what we've described is kind of this this path from I've never been creative to I'm creative every day as a professional and kind of describe this community where it has kind of every link in the chain from exposure to creativity to uh, participation in creativity, education right. in creativity, employment in creativity. So I'm not suggesting that every community is ever going to have all of this. But what I challenge you to do is to develop a, a rubric, an outcome rubric, that, so you know what you're shooting at. So when some arts group comes and says, oh, would you fund this program? You go back to your rubric and say, you know, where does this fit in? Is this consistent with our outcome, uh, our list of outcomes? Anyway. And I, honestly, I don't, I, I, I think 
Adrian, in some community cultural planning, they get kind of close to this. Um, but what they don't do is then develop indicators. Sure. That it takes are, a, I mean, what you you're know. describing anyway. takes an incredible amount of stamina. Yeah. I mean, that's the first thing. Yeah. In other words, um, stamina to develop a consensus around the rubric, stamina to collect the data to measure yourself against the rubric, stamina to then invent policies that will have an impact on vitality, which is obviously what the objective of the game is. The objective of the game is not to be the recording angel. The objective of the game is actually to affect, ultimately, the vitality of the community. And one of the issues is, who has got the, as it were, uh -huh. the conceptual attention span to pick these things up and run right. them all the way through? Right. The other thing is the time horizon. Because one of the interesting things when Kate Levin was here this morning um, was she was talking very intelligently and very openly about the challenges mm -hmm. of the arts and culture when put alongside um, much more quantifiable, much more um, right. easily output-oriented, and what a disadvantage mm -hmm. it was. But she was also saying she was also saying that basically, rather, I think. We interpret it as <coughs> saying that in a stable situation, actually, which the city has been for many years politically, so that she has managed, as it were, to, to find her way through three successive administrations, the immediacy of politics didn't, uh, you know, held at bay. If you're working in a highly politicized or volatile or politically um, uh, more uh, changeable environment, then the time horizon over which this sort of uh, stuff mm -hmm. is relevant is very difficult to match right. political time horizons. Which it, and that may be one reason why a lot of the dialogue around this is in the foundation world right. rather than in the political world. In the political world, I suspect it's can we do a quick economic impact study or something in order to brandish this at somebody so that we can get the MRI right. in the budget next year. Or right. This year. right. I think one of the other things we were talking about is a lot of these things have nothing to do with the arts or are only tangentially related to the conventional high arts that are captured in the right. 501c3 uh -huh. and where a lot of the money goes. Right. So that actually right. you could get a lot right. of this by turning this into a creative donut and taking the arts out <laughs> of the middle of it. However, <laughs> however, it is these arguments that are actually used not necessarily to fund creative vitality, and it's these, but they are then used, as it were, to funnel um, money back to, and funding back, and political support, and et cetera, back to these 501c3s. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so right. I think one of the challenges is right. that these guys are the noisy guys. They're the politically, you know, as we were saying, they're the, they're the politically nimble guys. Mm -hmm. They're the guys with the boards, with the clout. They're the guys with the ears of the politicians. Right. And these guys, to some extent, are effectively disenfranchised in these processes. Or where they're franchised, they're not actually thinking about it because they're thinking about some, some right. other polit. Right. And, so, and so these guys, as it were, appropriate these arguments, but aren't necessarily representing uh, what they should be representing, because many of them are not particularly creative in their, in their structures. They may be creative well, in their Well, in output. the absence of this, the arts people own the argument. Yeah. Right, but that's that's and that's where I got with the Philadelphia people. I mean, imagine they spent you know, hundred thousand dollars on a study to sort of paint this picture of cultural engagement. You know, how many people 
dance socially at clubs and parties? How many people go to museums? How many people garden? You know, and how important is that to people? And you know, you paint this picture, and we came up with our own little rubric of uh, you know a pie chart of cultural engagement. And, and I remember presenting it to the arts community there. And it was just like blank stares. And I was thinking, you know, this is not the stakeholder group for this information. Right, because those guys were all thinking, that's not us. Yeah, they were that's like, not us. I'm over here in this little corner. Is your framework going to be informing allocative decisions, which is ultimately what policy is about? Correct. And if so, where the hell right. is this money going? Right, right. Is this money going to be taken out of right. my orchestra, taken right. out of my right. overhead for a new right. for the Kimmel Center, and distributed right. to right. Um, uh, an amateur knitting group right. um, on the uh, edge of town? Correct. Answer, corollary of your policy, yes. Correct. So, um, so the, right. the political infrastructure for right. cultural engagement agenda not really there, I guess. I mean, I don't know about Philadelphia, but well, maybe. No, the, the that's right. Um, there, is an, there is yet to be a stakeholder group constituted. So amateur knitters and their ilk. Or, or their champions. Yeah. <laughs> right. And until that stakeholder group, you know, it's supposed to be the local arts agency. Some communities don't have those at all. But uh, you know, the board of the local arts agency is ostensibly the champion of the whole system, um, but um, really often doesn't function at that level. So who, who in Philadelphia is going to receive this information and sit down and go, oh my god, how are we going to get 500,000 people dancing by 2012? Or how can we get a million people reading the same book? You know, no one is thinking at the scalable level, at the highest level of cultural engagement in communities about how to raise the, you know, move the big needle. You know, because actually, the, 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 one of the outcomes of having this discussion in Philadelphia is that we realize that if we want to move the big needle, actually the movement is not going to come in ticketed performing arts events and museum attendance, because there's not enough capacity. Not enough capacity? Well, th don't, if, if they increased their, their attendance rates by 20% across the board, it would be minuscule. Right. But rather, the big needle was going to be moved through media-based participation, through participatory programs, right. home-based activities, right? And it's my, oh, talk to orchestras someday about home-based ac music activities. Well, okay, so, so let me ask you this. I mean, it's been asserted, I mean, asserted that we live in a sort of golden age amateur participation at the moment. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a hell of a lot going on. Right. Uh, it's just that professional mainstream culture, uh, arts provision, has got a series of economic challenges to do with their relationship to their wider society as much as anything. They mm -hmm. seem to be losing relevance in some sense. So why do we need a policy for this outside circle? 
In other words, what's yeah. the, what is the problem that you are that, that this policy is seeking to address? Is it that there are latent uh, needs that are unmet, and if met, people will be more fully realized as human beings? Or um, is it in fact, is it, uh, can we sort of leave well alone because actually there's a hell of a lot going on? And what's more, the costs, right. of, the costs of participation right. are dropping very fast. Uh -huh. The costs of association are dropping very fast. Right. Right. The costs of, of uh, you know, creating social capital, uh, whether physically or virtually, seem to be dropping yeah. very fast. What is the problem that a strategy right. like this is seeking yeah. to address? Well, you know Kreidler's pyramid, yeah. right, which is uh, cultural literacy on the bottom, uh, participatory practice, yeah. and consumption of professional goods. Right, and so Basically, what you're saying is we really only need to invest in that, and this is a natural organic system that will replenish itself and take care of itself. I'm asking. Right. Right. And what I think, um, uh, I'm saying that, you know, okay, nominally, equity of opportunity is, is the first issue. Is because who is consuming professional goods and services? Rich people. Uh, mostly. Right. And then, but I would also say that if you do not invest in the uh, base of the system, the number of people trickling up to the top is slowly going to atrophy. Right. True. So these people might say, you know, might argue, don't divert my resources to cultural literacy programs. I need the resources. But actually, in the long run, if you don't invest in them, they'll go, you know. Right. But they don't take a long-term view. Right. They're looking at closing this year's right. but, uh, budget. So, but I think, you know, you ultimately come back to moral, moral issues. I mean, I'll tell you a story. Um, I did a study in California of um, patterns of cultural engagement. And part of our methodology was to knock on doors in low-income neighborhoods and administer a 25-minute protocol about people's creative activities. And believe me, you haven't lived until you've knocked on doors in you know, Selma, a little farming community south of Sacramento or um, Fresno. And so, of course, I, you know, we hired local crews, all bilingual, all people of color, and um, I had to go out there and train them, right? So you know, we had our training session, and, and then we went out, and so I knocked on doors, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of people have fences, and they don't want to let you in, and there are lots of, you know, angry dogs who also don't want you to get in. And, you know, so I knocked on the door of this house, tiny little house in a very kind of rundown area. But I interestingly, we had our highest response rates in the lowest income neighborhoods because there was much more acceptance of, of street activity, you know, and it was the high income neighborhoods where people would not answer their doors. Anyway, I knocked on this door, and this uh, uh, ten-year-old boy opened you know, in, in Spanish, said hello, and I don't speak Spanish, so 
I had someone with me who could ask him, you know, say, would you please get your, your mother or father, we'd like to, you know, we're conducting a survey, you know, whatever. So, so the, the kid runs and gets uh, his mother, who does not speak English, and so um, we said we're with the, um, uh, what did we say, Irvine Foundation, I think, and, you know, we had t-shirts, we were credentialed, and she said, oh, please come in. And I had just trained everyone never to go into people's homes. <laughs> and she said, she sat us down and, and <laughs> offered us a drink and then kind of sat down on the couch and said, okay, I'm ready. And so I questioned her through her 14-year-old daughter who translated. And she answered every question so thoughtfully. We went through music, dance, theater, visual arts. And at the end of the protocol uh, was one of my favorite questions. And we said, of, of all the art and decorations in your home, which one is most meaningful to you? And why? And she thought quietly. And she said, it's the painting over my dining room table. And I said, may I look? And she said, yes. So I got up and looked around the corner. And here was a faded poster graphic of a French Impressionist painting in a cheap plastic frame. And I sat down, I said, could you tell me why this is meaningful to you? And oh, she said, oh, it, it, it provides me with this sense of beauty every day. I look at it and I get this peacefulness. Uh, and sometimes when I'm very angry, I sit down in front of it and it calms me. And I was wiped out because that experience wiped 20 years of grime off my lens of what is meaningful to people and who am I to judge what is meaningful to people. So I love to sit down with museums and say, why should you care about what's hanging on the walls in people's homes? You know, what is the value of seeing a great work of art in a museum once in your life versus seeing a reproduction of that work of art hanging on the kitchen wall every day for 20 years. What is the value? How can you quantify that? I'd hate to have to. You know, but those are decisions ultimately that, that, that people have to make from a policy perspective and it's clear what decision people have made. Is that the professional? Yeah. The exclusive is yeah. infinitely more valuable right. than the wider distribution of yeah. access. Yeah. So anyway, that's yes. So I'm curious to see. I, I think that's like a really interesting story. We haven't talked that much about sort of art, like at that level in this class. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to see where that fits into this rubric that we just made because uh -huh. that woman may or may not have any art education or art literacy. Right. I don't know. Maybe she knows all uh -huh. that. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-
I think that's a fantastic point. Is is that maybe we don't <laughs> maybe we don't need more infrastructure. You know, maybe there are ways. You know, you were saying, Adrian, to, to distribute meaningful experiences without creating additional infrastructure. So you could have a museum with no building that that made art available to people in other settings. Whoa! So, um... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's Friday. It's Friday the end of a marathon, but how closely do you follow um, uh, all the burgeoning literature of happiness studies? Um, not really. Because... I mean, basically, what you know, what the happiness literature is about, or the empirically based happiness literature is about, is about well, you know, we look at economic growth, we look at net, you know, we look at GDP, then we look at net economic welfare. But hang on, actually, we can these days through uh, a combination of survey data and uh -huh. brain scans, uh -huh. uh, right? And, you know, really tell a lot about what gets people going and what people don't uh -huh. get people going. Uh -huh. And if there has ever been a utilitarian object of public policy, it's basically you know, minimizing unhappiness or possibly right. maximizing happiness. Right. And that cultural provision is really just a subset of happiness policy because it's alongside other forms of things that one does uh, in order to, uh, you know, increase the, you know, whatever you want to call it, psychic utility or whatever else. Right, right. And it's always struck me that um, actually uh, that's probably right and that it's a pretty good lens through which to look at cultural policy. Um, uh, and it would suggest you know, that, that actually uh, ensuring that uh, the woman in the uh, Latino lower mm -hmm. income um, household has access, or low income household has access to you know, maybe two or three paintings, mm -hmm. um, and they might rotate or whatever else. Is or that anyone in a community can get a framed work of art in their home for $10, right. or you um, know, as a matter of policy. And um, and that the other thing is, uh, there's something Brent's more articulate about than I am. That we have got a lot also to learn from the slow food movement or the slow movement more generally, because actually then the next trick is okay, how to get people into the same frame of mind as she is clearly in, in order to appreciate uh -huh. her, uh, uh, that work of art. I how to encourage in a fragmented ever more fragmented, ever more fast, ever more goal-oriented society, how to, as it were, slow it down enough to have the aesthetic experience that is potentially available, mm -hmm. but that all the noise in your life pushes out. Uh -huh. And what you know, the slow movement did was to say, well, hang on, guys. Let us, either at a city level or a community level or as, a, as an association of people, knowing this in the abstract, well, let's just do it. In other words, let's slow down. Let you know the whole the whole aesthetic of the slow movement, mm -hmm. the food movement, is to aestheticize the experience or re-aestheticize uh -huh. the experience, the culinary experience, um, and uh -huh. it's been immensely successful. I mean, the slow movement is, is extraordinarily successful, and why can't we uh, think about replicating that in order to, as it were, find, give people the opportunities 
to re-aestheticize other experiences. Right. Like music experiences, oh. visual arts experiences. Extreme gardening. Dance, yeah, gardening, whatever else. Um, uh, and we bang on about you know, economic impact or whatever else, but actually there are all sorts of other agendas that are sort of more closely related right. to the intrinsic as opposed to the right. instrumental right. that we right. could hook up to pretty effectively. Right. Yeah, I think hap happiness, okay, on some level is the social, is the ultimate social outcome. But um, I'm not sure meaning is synonymous with happiness always. And I think that art sometimes plays a role other than to make people happy. No, yes. And then, I mean, I know there are layers of, you know, is, is it better to be, you know, Socrates unsatisfied or a satisfied pig, etc. But the, but the point about happiness studies, you know, the, co the contemporary, the aspiration of the contemporary literature of happiness mm -hmm. studies mm -hmm. is to sidestep those mm -hmm. and to say, well, hang on, there are certain fulfilling states of mind, flow, as it's known in shorthand, that, um, uh, that are, you know, um, clearly of a deeply satisfying and creative right. sort. And right. they seem to be very similar in their nature to the sort of rapture that um, great aesthetic experiences right. have. And it's not so much that they can be taught simply, right. but, they, but the conditions that are conducive to them and are con the conditions that are conducive to profound contentment um, yes, but Adrian, I can achieve a state of flow mo cutting, you know, mowing the lawn. Absolutely, you can. Right, or doing the dishes. Absolutely, or or as, right. as some of those original flow studies are doing your nails. I mean, I know it's really <laughs> <laughs> fine, um, but um, painting. But if you no, I agree though. <laughs> Right, because you can achieve a lot of benefits through sport, right? S similar, yeah. Yeah, and you've got to put them alongside one Right, another. but I mean also, and actually you, you've pushed me along in this direction, is, is that there is a public value to having infrastructure in place that can produce new and great art. Yeah. Almost independent of what they do produce. There, there's a, there is a value it's hard to describe. It's like in, in the contingent valuation literature, it's like existence value. It's like, I don't use it, but I want my community to have that because we benefit from it. Um, and so I think even if you don't ever go to the theater, that there's a value, you know, because if we solely relied on consumer data, we wouldn't have the infrastructure for maintaining, preserving, and creating the cultural artifacts that our great society has. So, because I'm, I just had this discussion with the, a guy from the DCMS, uh, the Department of Culture, Media, and Sport in the UK, is that they've done this huge case program, Culture and Sport Evidence. And they did a literature review with 65,000 studies. Oh my God. And they're sort of now, they're trying to monetize, they're trying to attach economic value to intrinsic impacts. And of course it's all breaking down, because you can't. Um, but um, um, 
an interesting thing this guy said was that in other fields, like in transportation, they're, they're much more comfortable dealing with um, uh, non-economic but very important outcomes. Like if they're going to put a road in, they have to demolish some homes and displace some people. How do you well, calculate that? No, that's something slightly I mean, different. Digit valuation is a way. Um, the classic um, uh, example of this is the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, what was the economic value of that damage? Right. And they gave people um, surveys with 10,000 items to say, what is the value of a dead seagull? What is the value of a dead fish to you against a dead, you know, and something else. And there's actually a way of constructing it. And now in the courts are, are using continued valuation as a means of justifying punitive damages. She does not identify with the space. She thinks it's not for people like her. So she is squarely outside the infrastructure of purpose-built arts facilities. And a lot of people are. So, which is a whole nother, whole nother story. I mean, if you look at data, Hispanic people use purpose-built arts facilities at about half the rate of white people. Now, it could be because they're farther; they don't live near them. Could be because they're off-putting; they think they can't afford to go. It could be because they don't broadcast information in two languages. You know, it could be a lot of reasons. But the the bottom line is there is a gross inequity of use of purpose-built arts facility. I just had this discussion earlier today at a service organization office that I shouldn't name. But the patient presents with the problem, the complaint, the ticket sales are down, and says, we need to focus on selling more tickets. Thus, all the emphasis now in the field on audience development and audience engagement, which I believe is largely displaced energy because people don't really want to talk about relevance and mission and the changing kinds of experiences that people want. So I hear a lot of arts groups saying, help, ticket sales are down, help us with marketing. And I usually say that your audience is a reflection of what's on stage. And of course you can do more and better marketing, but on some level you have to realize that your programming is driving your audience. So why don't you talk about the programs that you offer and what product lines would resonate with your community. And they usually don't want to have that conversation. Why not? Sorry? Why not? Um, well, superficially they say, well, that's not our mission. You know, so I'm working with an orchestra right now and their ticket sales are down, their subscriptions are down, they're screaming bloody murder, their musicians took a pay cut. And I go in and I did a big segmentation study and I said, that you in this community probably need to mean a number of things to a number of people in order to be a viable institution and employ musicians. 
So you probably need to look at maybe, okay, doing percussion concerts at midnight in warehouses for a young audience with a DJ. Like, oh, 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 we could never do that. I'm like, well, why not? You know, where is it in your mission? You know, or even if your mission says you produce orchestra concerts, well, change your mission. Well, what is the I'm point of you? I don't mean you. I of that organization. That organization was, uh, right. has, has its sense of purpose. All right, let, let me be the victim of a different bit. Yep. Okay, so Jazz at Lincoln Center has a fairly neocon musical mission, which is to keep the, the, cat, the canon, if you like, of jazz, largely acoustic jazz, jazz with swing rather than a background, right, right. Uh, predominantly American. Uh, jazz with the development section. Uh, uh, jazz with the development section, yeah, uh, alive. Um, uh, and if you were to say to me, fool, it's looking, you know, things are looking a bit tough, why don't you get into salsa? And why don't you get into um, uh, a bit more rock and roll or whatever, you know? Then I would say, or hip hop, yeah. I would say, what the hell is the point? I would yeah. rather, as it were. Well, that's fine. That so, just means. Yeah, but what's the difference between me and yeah. the, the guy you're kind of, kind of. I don't mind going to the warehouse. It's what I do in the warehouse that I care about. I will go anywhere. But if I go to the warehouse, I'm not, I don't want to do. A you know two turntable <laughs> This is your self concept. Yeah. <laughs> the metaphor is a padlock. <laughs> <laughs> so if your audience is shrinking yeah. and you don't want to change your self concept then you need to adjust the scale at which you operate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And stick to your mission. And God bless Absolutely. you, and I totally wish you all the best. But don't come crying to me. <laughs> I think only the most sophisticated managers understand that they operate in an ecosystem in which they are very interdependent with other players in the system. Heaven forbid they would wake up someday and see strategic value in someone else's mission. So you have silos, you know, a lot of programming. So if you buy the whole ecosystem argument, you know, um, oh God, there's this incredible new book out. Oh, Bill Sharp from the International Futures Forum, Graham Lester's collaborator. It's called Elements of Life. It's just just got a copy last week. And his whole premise is that if you buy that culture is an ecosystem, then you can't just take resources out without replenishing them. And in a healthy ecosystem, there is birth, there is competition for resources, and there's regular dying. Which is what we do a really bad job I, of, um, shall we say, re reinvention. You know, 
So why wouldn't an organization that is chronically distressed uh, why wouldn't the board of such an organization vote to dissolve the organization in two years and re in, the, in the intervening years reimagine itself? Right? It's healthy renewal. That's what we don't do from a policy level. So perhaps you know, one of the policy uh, uh, approaches is to um, facilitate dying. Sorry, be, be the undertaker. I remember Moyang called herself the, the undertaker of culture, culture once. Sorry? The Kevorkian of culture. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. If it ain't broke, break it. Um, but no, I, I'm actually very serious. You've had incubators for years. What about unincubators? You know, how do you remove unnecessary infrastructure from the system? How do you consolidate resources? How do you, I mean, if you think about it, the infrastructure in a community is so inefficient. You have half a marketing director here. You have a marketing director there. You know, you have all this redundant infrastructure, which is paid for by donors. And with little incentive to actually economize. And I'm not suggesting socializing the arts, but I do think that on some level, at a, you know, that from a policy standpoint, you probably want to create incentives for efficiency. Exactly, in the way that they might have done. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, do you see, as it were, some sort of tipping point approaching in which a more radical agenda about the re about the diversion of resources in imaginative ways away from larger uh, institutions is likely to happen? And if so, how ugly is that process going to be? I mean, the reason I say how ugly is because my take would be that that is going to happen, for what it's worth. And my take is that there will be one or two larger organizations that give up the ghost that will be regarded as politically dishonorable to have done so. But at the point at which they do, boards of other organizations will say, oh, what the hell? And there will, there will be a sort of slightly chaotic, but nevertheless, you know, kind of sociologically right, interesting right. process of readjustment. Yeah. Yes or no? Well, it is most, no. Oh. What do you see happening? I don't think, I think the power structure of the industry is too slow to change. It's very, very slow to change. You may see some inspired leadership create some new models of, of policy and funding. Um, and perhaps others will emulate that. You know, like Josephine Ramirez, I think is on the cusp of paradigmatic change. Um, Works in a foundation now. Yeah, and is bringing a new value system to her work that it could potentially result in a, a radical shift. Um, so the, the political realities of the power system now are going to be so slow to change. But what I think could happen is. Um, is for s someone to figure out that um, um, 
someone to invent a new sort of playbook of endings for yeah. arts organizations and publish a book and fund the first 20 where the message is to boards of directors actually is that the responsible thing to do for a chronically distressed nonprofit is to thoughtfully put it down or vote to put it into a receivership program to allow some other group of people to decide what to do with it or so you know new ways of advancing um, infrastructure because right now boards of directors I don't know but I think believe that their job is to perpetuate the organization at any cost at any cost and no one is thinking I mean I I had this moment, this, this near-death consulting moment with the Houston Symphony. You know, they were, they were $7 million in debt, financed against their $50 million endowment, which should never have been allowed, just settled an acrimonious strike, debt was mounting, audience was declining, you know, and I went down and met with them you know, uh, and this is, you know, the third or fourth time that they had been in this situation, and they just sort of, every time they find a donor, you know, a white knight. <coughs> and so we talked, and I sort of gave them a quick assessment, and then I said, you know, would you, for, for 30 minutes, you know, and here was the board chair, the board president, the staff leadership, and a committee of musicians, I said, would you imagine what you could be if you could start over. And they would not have that conversation. They could not, would not, because there was, too, I learned, too much invested in the status quo. And I learned that paradigmatic change is very unlikely to occur until everyone understands that the status quo is not possible. They could bifurcate their board and say, okay, we're gonna dissolve in two years and reincorporate the next day, uh, and half of you are charged with winding down as elegantly as possible, and half of you are charged with reimagining. Because I don't think you can operate both sides of your brain at the same time. And then they ask themselves, what kind of a music organization does Houston want and need? and build it from the ground up. And that might be, it might include a radio station, it might include a school, it might include an orchestra, but it might not. That it's getting more and more difficult to satisfy everyone with the same experience. And this is, you know, particularly in the orchestra field, but even in the way, the kinds of facilities that get built. You know, what, what facilities, you know, what is the seating configuration of the next generation of theaters and concert halls that allow people more control over their experience. You know, and most architects don't really want to answer that question. But I think it's a critical because our facilities actually are signaling to people that not to, you know, not to come. Everything in the environment is changing constantly. Like starting with people's tastes music, dance, everything, are changing so rapidly. 
Right? I mean, think about yourselves. Think about the music you like now versus three years ago. I mean, you're constantly evolving. People's tastes are, and so little is understood about how people's tastes evolve. But when your organization is defined around a certain art form <laughs> performed a certain way at oh. convenient times in acoustically perfect venues, you know, you're just limiting by definition, you know, what you can do. And if that's what you want to do, great. But what's happening is that cultural tastes are diffusing. People don't put art in the buckets that we used to put it in definitionally, you know. Uh, and so if, if tastes are diffusing, but this is your mission, what's going to happen? Is eventually you're going to lose your audience because it's gone somewhere else aesthetically, right? Which is why we need the art forms to stay fresh and uh, continually evolve. So, you know, I don't know why uh, arts groups, I don't know why every theater doesn't have a storytelling program, you know, where community members come and tell their stories on stage. But how many theater companies have you talked to say, oh, we would never let amateurs on our stage? You know, I don't know why every orchestra musician doesn't play in a community orchestra as part of their job to lift the quality higher and build sort of a farm team, you know. Um, I, I know the reasons why these things don't happen, but uh, at some point, if they don't start happening, you know, it's just going to get harder and harder. I, I think that is one of the rationales yeah. for the symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's only one of the rationales, but it's a very important rationale. And the rationale is there is an extraordinary talent of music that was written for this form. There's some still obviously being written, but there's an extraordinary canon of music uh, dating you know, uh, from the high classical age onwards. And that it is important that the world remembers and understands that canon and that it is accessible and kept alive so that it, it, so that it never falls into disuse. The question is, how many professional symphony orchestras of the highest level do you need to meet that mandate? You don't need as many as there are. There's another argument for saying hmm. people should be able to enjoy and have access to that canon. It's a different argument. One is about the canon being kept alive, something objective being kept alive. Another is about people being able to, and then you say, well, yes, but bands can tour uh, new, new media allows you, you know, the digital concert hall, right. you're all going to switch on next week to watch Winton's Swing Symphony, um, uh, uh, you know, provides you streaming high-def video. That is a pretty good experience. And, uh, and those are, what, all the, what those two different arguments do is suggest, yeah, but the present configuration is not necessarily the most rational policy configuration Correct. given what your aims are. And then the third one is, and there should be a hell of a lot of fun making music. And for that, you need community orchestras, you need to encourage amateurism, uh, amateur participation. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's about you know, what Josephine was doing at, uh, when she was at the uh, right. Music Center in LA, which was get your chops back bands. You know, bands for all those people who have learned instruments 
in early years, falling distributes in their early professional years, um, you know, or having kids or whatever else, and just getting their jobs back. Doesn't necessarily sound that fantastic, but it's fantastic to be part of. Uh, three completely different arguments uh, for three completely different sets of provisions, but none of them really look like the current set of provisions. So if you have a sort of strategic perspective, you don't end up with the current map, and the big challenge is how you get from here to there. Well, that's what I came here to learn. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> okay. Stock take point. Where are we? Yes, go. No? no? All right. So, um, uh, where I, I'd love to just go around the room to get some sort of sense of whether you have felt. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not looking for like you know positive feedback, particularly or negative. I'm just saying, do you think cultural policy is a very soupy area? It's a very opaque area, and it's very opaque, I think, for reasons that we've uh, discovered. When you look at the literature, the, the the literature often deals with abstractions without necessarily defining them. Where they do define them, the literature often doesn't. Um, come out with the, with the same definitions, and therefore it's very difficult to compare like with like. Um, here's somebody peddling another set of de definitions, as it were, in order to try and get some clarity. The CDP exercise, even at data level, is about trying to get some sort of standard framework in which to analyze even the most rudimentary aspects of the financials uh, of the sector. The definitions of the sector between the arts, culture, and creativity all have different, different implications. We talked about the different models um, from the, the highly centralized to the highly uh, so decentralized in federal government that it's, you know, uh, the, the term implicit is used because you have to divine what the policies are. You can't simply, um, uh, you can't simply pick up a book and read those policies because they are, if you like, the consequences of decision rather than the overt objects of decision. Um, uh, what I would hope that you have um, got out of this is the confidence, as it were, to chop through some of that more aggressively than you might spontaneously have done, and chop through it by asking what are ultimately fairly simple questions. The simple question is, you know, what the hell is a policy? Um, do you know what the ends of policy are? And we started with the idea of a vibrant cultural community, and we ended with the idea of a vibrant cultural community for a reason, which is that basically, um, uh, when you look at you know when you look at the whole debate about intrinsic versus instrumental etc the instrumental debate appears it is a very important debate but it's primarily an advocacy debate rather than a policy debate and although there's not a moral judgment that policy is better than advocacy or advocacy is better than policy you, one needs to bear in mind the distinction between the two and that unless one as it were focuses on um, uh, what's in the box rather than what the box does, you're never really going to understand the policy aspects. You might, you might become a great lobbyist, um, a great speaking lobbyist, but even then you need to be able to relate that back to some sort of argument about basically what sort of community you want to live in and what its attributes are. Um, uh, the, um, uh, I guess the other thing is, is for me, at any rate, the spectacular difference in the vitality of the discussion around uh, cultural policy at local and city level 
versus uh, the national level. And that's, I believe, because a lot of what is, is the, the most interesting aspects of, of uh, cultural policy are, in effect, very, very fine-grained. And the sorts of things that reach them and affect them are the sorts of things that are you know, reached through policy instruments at basically city level. Um, uh, so it's not surprising that, as it were, when we read the cultural industries, the larger cultural industry strategies, there's a great deal of literature about data collection. There's a great deal of uh, literature about, uh, about what, what should be considered a creative industry and what isn't. But when it comes to actually what the hell is the policy and what are the ends of those policy, it's very unclear. The European community, for example, is an extreme example. But you know, the British government's example through at least 10 years of trying to articulate its cultural its cultural strategy at national level is another very uh, very clear one, where there was an enormous amount of, as it were, data gathering and typological uh, rumination, but very little in terms of policy action. If you move to city level, you know, whether it's Barcelona or Bilbao or New York or uh, New Orleans, um, then it all becomes a, a great deal more real. Um, I think that, um, uh, I mean, I think that for me, the other, the other thing is we are, I, I would assert at a really interesting point in the evolution of arts policy. Good old, ye olde, ye olde, 501c3 or for profit, uh, not for profit, uh, charity, whatever the unit is, um, traditional provision. And that's because the wider changes in demographics, in underlying economics, in, in, um, in technology are, as it were, have reached a point at some sort of critical point, whether or not, as it were, it will be the Dr. Kevorkian of, um, uh, of, uh, of the arts that's the answer, or whether it's about uh, reinvention, whatever it is. I, my own belief is that this is a really interesting period, because a period of just saying, yes, give us more, yes, give us more, which has seen that accelerated growth through, I don't know, a 30 or 40 year arc, I believe has probably come to an end. Uh, and the process of adjustment back of supply and demand is going to be truly interesting. It's not going to be all bad at all, because what it will be about is, to some extent, about new forms of vitality breaking through and being encouraged, and new organizational forms and new art forms breaking through, and as it were, just pushing past this slightly congested undergrowth of, um, of uh, organizations that are, in a sense, fighting for their, fighting for their mandate and fighting for their relevance. So my take is that, you know, just in, in terms of cultural policy over the next uh, couple of years, or no, I shouldn't say that longer than that, the next decade or so, at, at, uh, 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 at, particularly at city level, it's a really interesting chapter. The most important thing is, you know, getting common terms for the debate. I know it sounds trivial, but it's really, it's really important. Common terms for the debate, uh, which is what intellectual discourse is about, not people shouting past one another is, immense, is, is immensely important. It's not a very big policy community. You know, you put all the academics together, you put all the policy wonks in, in, in um, uh, you know, consultants, and you put all the, the people in actual poli real policy jobs, and you know, <coughs> you probably, you know, you probably not quite get them all in this room, but even, a, even an international, it's a fairly small community. So it ought to be as difficult as it has proved to have a common debate. And yet when you pick up the journals, when you pick up the, I don't know, the International Journal of Cultural Policy or whatever else, 
you're always starting each article thinking, where the hell is this person coming from? How does this relate to? The idea that knowledge should be cumulative, that there is some sort of paradigm which is ultimately cumulative, and then when new knowledge comes along, you know how to fit it in, or if it doesn't fit in, it changes the paradigm, you know, that Kuhnian sense of, you know, uh, <coughs> principles of scientific revolutions, um, has only applied imperfectly to the cultural sector. It's only applied imperfectly to the, to the accretion of knowledge in this sector. And certainly one of my, hope, my hopes that, um, you know, as cultural policy progresses, it becomes more and more easy to fight, to work out and work through where each piece of new, as it were, knowledge or insight relates to the relates to the paradigm. Which is why I think things like the fact that you built your ed, your current edifice on the Rand Report's topology, you probably built that topology and thought, God, should I should I screw around with that a bit? Um, uh, and you could probably have refined it, but it's actually probably ultimately more useful to have built it on that topology than to have, you know, as it were, started again elsewhere. Because what that means is that there is some sort of process of a common framework mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. One of the things that most irritates me personally about business literature uh, and, and management literature is that everybody who writes in the field attempts to write in a way that accentuates product differentiation in order to promote their theory, in order to promote their own professional careers, academical consulting. Which means that what happens is, you know, each book is about actually 99% the same in its insight and perspective as another book, but it emphasizes the 1% in order to build market share. And uh, uh, it's a very depressing fact. If you read all the literature on corporate and strategic planning, it's pretty well all the same. Pretty well all says the same things. But, the, but if you read the book blurbs only, each book will be absolutely revolutionary distinctive and not attempt to build on the others. And I'm just suggesting that in, in this debate, it's very important that they're cumulative, which is why the dialogue between professional consultants and students and so forth is important. Okay. Um, yeah. All the scholars, everybody yeah. is talking about policy and writing about it. When do they finally have the convention or the mandate that says, okay, this is where we start. This is where we begin to well, actually create a new policy. It doesn't have to be permanent, but it's a start. I mean, because we, we've talked about it for a long time. I mean, it feels to me, in this conversation we've had for two weeks, we seem to know what the problems are. Well, I think that's, I think that's for a, a, a couple of things. Firstly, um, diagnosis should precede um, a prescription. Agreed? In other words, a prescription without diagnosis is fairly dangerous. Um, uh, we, I think, I think that there is an increasing diagnostic consensus about issues um, to do with cultural policy. A diagnostic consensus. I think there's also a consensus around prognosis. In other words, not quite going to hell in a handbasket, but there are, you know, there are a series of issues that need to be sorted out. What I don't think there is yet is a prescriptive consensus. I mean, I genuinely don't think there's a prescriptive consensus. I mean, he and I, you know, are already sort of uh, disagreeing, as it were, about okay, um, uh, what are the what are the mechanisms? Um, so I so it's not as if. First of all, that doesn't matter. You know, the world's a lot of different. I think it's. I think the real value is diagnostic is an informed diagnostic consensus. No point having a diagnostic consensus that's wrong. 
Um, it's a kind of dangerous thing. But I think there's a sort of informed diagnostic consensus within the policy community about many of the challenges facing not-for-profits. Uh, not-for-profits, I shouldn't say not-for-profits, facing the cultural sector more generally. I think it's also very important that those lessons are learnt in time, particularly with respect to those countries that are now heavily investing in infrastructure. The fact that somebody who worked at the LA uh, uh, Music Center is now convening a debate on how to take capacity out of um, uh, concert halls and repurpose concert halls suggests to me that those people who are currently planning concert halls in the pipeline need to be thinking really hard about adaptive reuse, flexibility, pragmatism, dematerialization, etc. Um, uh, so I think to that extent, the change in the climate of opinion some extent will it will inform right. um, will in predictably I believe it's happening in the funding community. Um, uh, why is it happening in the funding community? Because those people circling their wagons are also bashing on the door of the funding community, saying, you know, you've got to help us. You know, we're running into the street with our hair on fire, you've got to help us, we are really important, give us more money. And they're saying, well, are you really important? Um, and so I think that to some extent uh, as it were, you've got there is a, there is a, there are different there are different policy communities and there's different debates going on. I certainly think, uh, and it's predictable that the funders uh, and the policymakers, as it were, will get there a little bit before the individual arts organisations. Although there is a point at which even those arts organisations, uh, as it were, are prepared to have a mature conversation, and that's why I think things have changed a bit. Detroit. You've been work, you work, work at all in Detroit? No, I grew up in Detroit. Okay, so Detroit is, as it were, the poster child of everything. The poster child of everything that we're talking about. And you know, the difference even in those institutions between three years ago just saying our mission is to survive to now saying how do we repurpose cultural infrastructure to a completely tra transformed city that will never again have the demographic that wants to support all this big nineteenth century kit. I think there is, you know, but it, yeah, it yeah I, paradigmatic change will result from economic necessity or incredibly brilliant leadership or some combination of the two. Sorry? Yeah. You. No, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, if, if, if someone were to write a book, I mean, look what, I hate to bring it up, Richard Florida did. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can argue with his arguments. But he actually changed the conversation, introduced new vocabulary, and, and sent a message that if you want to be a competitive community, you need to care about creative things. And actually changed the conversation, right? And he wrote a book that was very influential, and he went on a speaking tour. So I think it's possible for, you know, for change to arise from very self-serving individual who wants to write a book on cultural policy. Adrian, if you wrote a book on cultural policy, it could change the landscape of cultural policy if you honestly, I honestly believe that. You know, so I think there is a lot of individual prerogative that could precipitate you know, change like that. Or, or if the National Endowment for the Arts said, we're devoting 20% of our budget to supporting local cultural policy development because we think it's a huge priority. That could change the conversation. You know, so it could come from a number of places. 
The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.